Hey there, Conquerors. Mike here to remind you all that we are now on Patreon. So if you like Conquering Columbus and hearing all the cool stories from people here in the city, head over to www.patreon.com backslash Conquering Columbus. And there you can sign up to donate and be one of our patrons, which is a way to support us via small monthly donations. And it uh, keeps the podcast up and running and keeps allowing us to uh, bring great interviews to you in the future. So please head on over there and check it out. And without further ado, let's get to the episode. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey guys, welcome to Conquering Columbus. On this episode, we got Mr. Mike Novogratz. We're very excited to have him on, and I'm going to kick it over to my co-host, Mike Minucci. Let him give you guys some background on Mr. Novogratz. Hey guys, you know the drill. I'm here to give you a little background on Mr. Novogratz, and uh, he's had a pretty impressive career, but we're going to start at the beginning. Uh, he's the captain of the Princeton Wrestling Team, where he earned a degree in economics, and after graduation, he completed a short stint in the military as a helicopter pilot, and he got his first job at Goldman Sachs in 1989 as a money market salesman. Over time, he made his way up the ranks and was eventually elected partner in 1998. After Goldman Sachs, he joined Fortress in 2002, and he helped to take the company public. This was the first hedge fund to ever go public. And while at Fortress, he was the chief investment officer for macro funds and manager of the company's hedge funds. He made the Forbes 400 list in 2007 and 2008, and today, we're really excited to have him on Conquering Columbus. Welcome to the show, Mr. Novogratz. Thank you. How's your day going? You're out in the Hamptons right now? You know, it's a beautiful morning. I got some friends staying with me. Uh, they woke up. They got a little baby who looks like Bam Bam. So we've been playing with him and uh, looking forward to some beach time and uh, just enjoying myself. That's great. That's great. Well, thanks for taking the time to uh, come out and talk to us while you're out in the Hamptons. I'm sure that <laughs> there's the things you might want to be doing other than talking to a couple of podcasters this morning. But uh, So we know you through uh, Coach Ryan and your connection to wrestling. Do you want to describe that a little bit and what you do for wrestling right now i know you're chairman of beat the streets and maybe maybe start at the beginning and talk about wrestling at princeton how you ended up at princeton and then we can evolve into that relationship as the story goes on sure so you know my dad <clears throat> wrestled at west point way back uh but he was really more of a football player you know he was a famous football player and so i grew up in the in the in the shadow of a very athletic family my dad uh, was lineman of the year in football uh, he had a brother that played for the Vikings. He had another brother that, you know, was on the taxi squad for the Detroit Lions. Uh, they were uh, Lehigh Valley guys. Uh, and I think they're the only three brothers in the Lehigh Valley Hall of Fame. Um, but I was kind of a skinny, scrawny kid. And my dad put me in wrestling in like third grade, uh, maybe second grade even. Um, and it was just a normal <clears throat> youth program, you know, not like today's programs where it goes all year. It was probably a 10-week season, um, and I just took to it. I liked it. Um, 
I tend to think you like things you're good at, uh, you know, because if you go out and get crushed, it's hard to like it. But I was at least pretty good at it and stayed with it, uh, you know, through high school. And, you know, by eighth grade, I was actually real good. Again, this is relative to the competition in the area. Um, and got kind of started my first Beat the Streets with my father, uh, where we had a, a high school that whose wrestling team had never been great. Uh, there was a, about 20% of our high school that was bussed in from an area called Gum Springs, which is the area where George Washington had left to his slaves. And so it was a mostly a African-American black, black area uh, with some great athletes. And so my dad and I had this idea, uh, a little probably less in my mind from a kind of a social justice perspective, but more from how do we get our team better perspective, that we would start this youth program and we would drive our station wagon over uh, to Gum Springs every night and or whatever, two, three nights a week, and you know, pick up some of the kids and started a youth program, which in turn really did help you know, the high school team. And so I had a good high school career. I unfortunately lost in the state finals in overtime. Uh, that match still pisses me off. <laughs> and you know, I went to Princeton uh, as, a, uh, as a freshman and realized, damn, I'm just not that good. Uh, and so... Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about going to college, I think, in general, and at least in my my aspect, Princeton specifically, I thought I was really smart, and then I realized I'm just not that smart. And I thought I was a really good wrestler, and I was like, I'm just not that good. And you know, it's a humbling experience. And so, you know, over time, I I finally made the varsity my junior year, um, and I made it to nationals. And and I, you know, I had a good good career. It was you know, I I'd call it good, not great. Uh, I lost all the really important matches in my life. <laughs> I lost the state finals. I lost the, the Eastern finals my senior year. And if I had won that, I would have been in the, on the Princeton Hall of Fame wall and I would have been the Ivy League rest of the year. And all my family was there. My parents didn't, hadn't seen me wrestle in college because my dad was in the army and he had been stationed in Germany. And they all flew back just for this Eastern finals. And uh, all my relatives from Northampton came uh, all over Allentown. And, it was at Princeton and jab with Jim and the whole gym was chanting no vo and I got headlocked early on and got the crap beat out of me. Um, oh, <laughs> then I got to nationals and I, I you know, I avenged that defeat uh, and got, uh, got everyone always says I was in the round of 12. I really wasn't in the round of 12, but, but like the, the round before the round of 12, uh, I had to wrestle a guy from Oregon state and I should have beat him. i got behind him, had to pick him up and put him down. I pulled him right on top of myself. And uh, so I didn't win that match either. Um, you know, I felt like I was getting stronger and better and probably needed, you know, in this day and age, I would have redshirted two years and maybe I would have been a better, better wrestler. But back then, you know, the redshirt thing wasn't as prevalent. Um, I kind of tell that story because for me, figuring out why I always lost in the important matches, you know, was part of the journey. Um, I have a great story. I actually, I think I told uh, uh, when I they they let me into the wrestling hall of fame as a as a a good donor to the sport, um, and I was telling the story like the best compliment I ever got. Uh, Ed Bannock came up to me at a wedding, and I, he was with some other Princeton wrestlers, and uh, he said, "You know, you guys were such tough wrestlers, Princeton wrestlers." And he said, "John Sefter and Johnny Orr," and he said, "Mike Novogratz." Well. John Scepter was a national finalist. Johnny Orr was a two-time national finalist. 
and they were really the legends of Princeton wrestling. Uh, there are five or six other guys in my even, you know, general 10 years that had better performance and, and credentials than I did. One of them, my good friend Dave Persani, was standing right there. And it was like a dagger in his heart when Vanek said Mike Novogratz. Uh, and so I just smiled from ear to ear and looked over at Persani with a big grin on my face. And uh, later on, a few beers later, I snuck around to Vanek. I was like, hey, I really appreciate the compliment, but like, where did that come from? And he had been assistant coach at West Point one year. And I was, my junior year, I was supposed to wrestle this guy, Mike French, who was ranked seventh at the time. You know, I had just made the varsity. And so I was nervous as hell. And I thought they sent out their JV guy because I had a picture of Mike French's face in my head. And they sent someone else out there. And so now I think I'm wrestling the JV guy. So I'm taking him down. I'm letting him up. I'm throwing him into this scores table. And I beat him like 13 to 3. And <laughs> sure enough, it turned out it was actually Mike French. So Bannock's looking at this through the eyes of, you just destroyed our best guy. Uh, what a tough guy. And I did it with kind of a, an anger. Uh, for me, I'm thinking, you know, what was it in my head that when I was thinking I was wrestling the JV guy, I was much better than, than uh, the nerves of, you know, why uh, I was so scared to win. Um, anyway, so that, that started kind of the wrestling journey of, of realizing that sports is as much in your head as it is in your training and uh, I kind of filed that away. I went off to flight school. I got a job at Goldman Sachs. I was uh, sent to Asia. I spent seven years in Asia. Uh, Hong Kong and Tokyo had a, a great time. Started my family there. And when I came back, I had a friend uh, who asked me if I'd coach her youth team. There was no youth wrestling in New York City. Uh, her husband had wrestled at Penn. She was running a charter school. And she said, do me a favor spent eight weeks, two nights a week with these kids. And so we found this gym in the middle of New York. Uh, and I just had a great time coaching these kids, throwing them around, smashing them. Uh, there was like a night program there where some kind of older guys that had never really wrestled would show up to wrestle after our practice. And one of the guys, you know, would start coming early and helping me out and, uh, uh, I kind of mentioned, I said, we should have wrestling in New York City. There wasn't wrestling. And the next year, this guy, Rob uh, Schoenberg, showed up in my office and said, hey, you know, you said you'd buy a mat. I want my kids middle school to have wrestling. You know, can I take you up on it? And, and so we bought our mat. It was our first Beat the Streets program at a place called Baruch Middle School. Uh, Al Bevilacqua showed up with Rob. I, Rob had found Al. Al had had this dream of Beat the Streets way before I did. Uh, and so... We did a pilot program and it worked well. And the next year we did 10. And then I, uh, I started making real money in my job and got a little cocky and maybe too cocky. And uh, I was like, let's put wrestling in every high school in New York City. And so, you know, now we have, geez, I don't know. I think we have 160 programs between men and women. Um, we bought a lot of wrestling mats. And... You know, it's getting there. You know, we made a lot of mistakes. The biggest mistake was my own arrogance of like, let's, let's bust it out and build this thing so fast. You know, we're now kind of sh looking for quality over quantity. Uh, and part of it came from a good place. It came from a good place of the heart of saying, you know, this is a great sport. It teaches kids lessons. Let's 
let's get it to as many people as you can. And what you learn is, what I've learned in a real way is, you don't get a wrestler's education uh, unless you go through a real tough wrestling education. Uh, and that sounds like, you know, it's a tautology, but just being on a mat and rolling around, and that's recreation. Uh, you know, you don't learn grit and toughness and leadership unless you, and we're, I'm actually trying to define it right now. I've asked my board, I've asked our coaches, I'm asking guys like John Smith and Cale Sanderson, what defines a wrestler's education? You know, how many hours on a mat? How many times you got to come back after getting knocked down in the first round of a tournament and fight back to get third? You know, how many stairs do you have to run and how much weight do you have to cut? Uh, but that whole process that wrestlers go through that toughens them up uh, and turns into leadership is something I'm really kind of focused on empirically uh, because I've looked at our programs and we've had some great successes, but you know, probably half of them, I'm like, okay, it's nice, but we're not, you know, getting the, the, the grid. And that was probably from scaling too quick. Anyway, so that, you know, Beat the Streets has become a wonderful uh, movement. And it's far bigger than me. You know, we've got Beat the Streets in 18 cities now. And we had a process where people wanted to do it. I was like, hey, someone else has got to run it. Someone else has got to fund it. And so, like, we'll cheer you on. We'll help a little bit. You know, I bought mats and stuff for some of the other beat the streets but for the most part they're self-funded and self-run and and some of them are doing great you know beat the streets providence beat the streets philly la uh baltimore uh, really uh and so i i take great uh pride's the wrong word i get a big smile on my face thinking you know uh, imitations the the best form of flattery and that you know we've started kind of a, a movement and uh so that's neat you know even you know, the FILA, which is now whatever, UWW, uh, they came to us three years ago uh, after our event in, in Grand Central, and they said, we want to do this in other countries. And now I think they're beat the streets in four other countries as well. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's an awesome journey from starting something and scaling so quickly. And I, I know I had a, a chance to be a part of it when I was in college to help out at our Columbus local division. And uh, it was awesome to see kids get started that early. And even if they don't reach that wrestler's education right away, I think that it helps them develop a love for the sport if they're having fun at a younger age, even if they are just rolling around in the mats. And then they stick with it. And then as they get older, they can get that wrestler's education. You know? Oh, yeah. I, mean, I Just so I'm absolutely clear on this. Uh, I think we compete way, way too early in America. It, it drives me crazy. Like John Smith once told me, you know what you call an eight-year-old national champion? Burned out by 12. That's uh, true. And... You know, I, I would have it literally recreation up until sixth grade, seventh grade, and then kind of kick in to some competition and really start peaking it in, you know, ninth, tenth grade. Uh, but, you know, in New York, it's, un, it's unfortunate. We, we, we still don't have a real youth thing in the city. And so most of our kids were not even getting to seventh, eighth grade. Uh, it's amazing. We got such good athletes. We've got one kid that started in tenth grade and became a state finalist twice. Uh, and, you know, New York's not a crummy state. You know, we're, a, I don't know, a top 15, top 10 state. And so, uh, but it's really hard. You know, we're having a lot more success with our, our females, our women, uh, at a, both a national, even international level, because the competition's not as good. But it's tough to get a guy who's never wrestled and start him in ninth grade and think he'll be real competitive, you know, at a, at a D1 level. Um, you know, most, most people are starting in, you know, second, third, fourth grade. 
Yeah, sometimes you just get those freak athletes that come out of nowhere, and you're just like, man, those are the ones you're jealous of, too, because you're just like, man, that kid, he's already in 10th grade, and he's just Jordan Burroughs already, and you, you don't really understand. Yeah, it, it, it does piss me off, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of to kick back, the, I mean, that was an awesome background to Beat the Streets. Um, I think, for one, it's an awesome movement across the country, and I hope it continues to grow, and I think it's doing great things for the sport. And I think, you know, from Mike and I's perspective, we kind of fell short in our goals for wrestling, so we constantly are thinking about, you know, what ways can we give back in the long term? And I think that you've found a way to give back substantially, and then it just continues to grow on its own, so that's pretty cool. But what we kind of want to get into now is talking about um, your time at Princeton, what drove you towards a degree in economics, and when you were going to Princeton, were there other options in front of you, or was that kind of the school that you were set on? And then talk about your journey of getting your degree there and then um, going into the military after that. You know, I wish I could say I was just such a great patriot. I decided to go into the military to serve my country. But the, the reality was, you know, I grew up in an Army family. And we, in Alexander, Northern Virginia, it was government, West, you know, Army-type, Navy you know, people. And we looked at ROTC scholarships as just a way to fund college. Uh, you know, back then, if you were middle class, uh, there wasn't enough financial aid at these great universities to afford it unless your parents had done nothing but save every penny for their, their entire life, which, you know, I have six brothers and sisters, uh, one of seven. And so that wasn't part of the, the equation. Um, and so I, you know, I was a smart kid in high school and I applied and got into a lot of places. Uh, uh, I liked the people I met at Princeton. Brooke Shields was going my year and it made Princeton kind of a sexy place. Uh, I mean, this is, sounds, sounds silly, but it's kind of true. Uh, and I like the wrestling guys. And, you know, it was Ivy League. And you no know, one from my high school really was, was going to Ivy League schools in general uh, back then. And so um, I picked it. You know, I'd, I'd gotten into West Point and UVA and a few other places that uh, uh, I looked at. But Princeton just seemed to be a good fit. Uh, it was about three years into it, I uh, realized... Oh, God, I decided to join the Army. I don't, I don't even want to join the Army. Um, you know, I literally had made that decision without even thinking because it was just what you did in my neighborhood. It's a way to pay for school. You do ROTC. Um, and, you know, it turned out great uh, for a couple reasons. One, you meet a whole different world. I, you know, I spent a, a year and a quarter in Alabama uh, it's a precious year and a quarter to me. The friends I met, the, the, the life I saw, you know, growing up in Virginia, Northern Virginia and then Princeton, I kind of thought, you know, we're, we're a country post-racism. And I went down to Alabama and I was just confronted with, you know, bigotry and prejudice and racism. And I remember getting in bar fight after bar fight, uh, you know, because I'd be talking to a black girl and someone would come up and pick a fight with me just for that. And I just, it just was so foreign to me. And it, triggered in this kind of social justice piece of me. I was like, um, you know, and that wasn't all the South was. There's parts of the South I loved. Uh, but, whoa, it felt like we were two separate countries. And, you know, quite frankly, today, you know, we're two separate countries. I, I helped make a movie with uh, a far better wrestler than me, Nate Parker. Uh, he was a Virginia State champ, uh, and he wasn't All-American. So I'm like, God damn it. Uh <laughs> second and I wasn't an All-American. Uh, and he was a volunteer at Pete the Streets, Los Angeles, uh, a great kid. And he came and, you know, kind of threw his body at the, the mercy of the court and said, yeah, please, you got to give me some money to help me make this movie. And so 
we got together and I helped uh, small, you know, fund this movie Birth of a Nation, which is going to win an Academy Award, and Nate's going to be the next Denzel Washington or bigger. Um, but what's more interesting about not just you know betting on the right uh, horse and 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 seeing your friends succeed uh, when we were at our uh, when we were at uh, Sundance and he was giving a speech first to the cast and the next day to all the press. Uh, I sat back with this great pride. He was so good and the message was so clear and it kind of brought me back full circle, you know, to Alabama. The movie is all about uh, a slave rebellion. It's the Nat Turner slave rebellion. And, you know, guys like us might call it the black Braveheart. Uh, uh, but he's so crafty in talking about how slavery was this, you know, corrupt system and it corrupted both the, the whites and the blacks and everyone else. And, you know, we have these corrupt systems in the world that we need to fight against. And, you know, Nate's a real activist and social warrior. And, uh, I kind of thought, wow, that link to Alabama come, and wrestling comes full circle. And so I never regretted any time in the Army. I flew helicopters, which was a ton of fun. I still fly. I flew a helicopter out here to the Hamptons yesterday, which is a ton of fun. Uh, I really never served uh, any, anything of, of note. And you know, I once said that in Jamil Breyers, who was a Greco wrestler, was in the Army. He said, oh, bullshit, you raise your right hand and defend the swear to defend the Constitution, you're, you're part of the Brotherhood. Uh, and maybe that's true, but I either had the best luck or the worst luck, depending on how you look about it. Uh, I was positive we would never go to war again after Glasnost in any kind of major way. And the Army, their entire uh, training at that point was tank warfare, the fold the gap in Germany, you know, when you're fighting the bear. And I was like, dudes, we're not going to fight Russia. Aren't you paying, does no one read the newspaper? <laughs> you know, And so... I opted to go to the National Guard, uh, which was a much easier commitment. And, uh, and not I, honestly because I was scared of going to war. I actually probably, I love the Army type stuff. Uh, excuse me. But more because I didn't want to practice for something and never even get on the mat. And sure enough, I'm now working at Goldman Sachs. It's six months post my Army. And Saddam, Uve, Saddam invades Kuwait and all my you know, colleagues from flight school, they're off next thing, you know, flying and in, flying into the Mideast. And uh, I'm like, oh, that was wrong. <laughs> you know, I'm at Goldman Sachs giving advice on what what to expect in this war. Everything I said was wrong as well. <laughs> you know? um, I would have also bet at that point that there was zero chance they would ever use the National Guard. Uh, and sure enough, th three years into New York, I got sent to Tokyo. I had to leave the National Guard. Uh, and about a year later, they sent my guard unit into Bosnia. Uh, and I'm like, whew, you know, wrong on that one too. And so I've either been very lucky to always miss combat or unlucky to having seen it, you know, depending. I think it's probably lucky. Um, but so never really got that engaged. But, but kind of love what the servicemen do, understand it, grew up with it. And so for someone from Columbus, that's probably not so unique. But in New York City... Almost no one knows anyone who served in the military. Uh, I mean, it really is shocking. The military is, is, is full of, you know, people from the South and from the heartland. And, you know, you don't, gotta, don't have a lot of Los Angeles, New York uh, uh, in the Army. And so I, I see that as a big strength. I'm rambling because it's the morning, so you've got to bring me back on track. 
It's no problem. You know, it's funny. My uh, my dad actually is from New York City, and uh, he joined the military when he after Columbia. And you know, the reason he said that he joined was because everybody else was doing the uh, you know get a job in you know downtown or get a job somewhere else, and that he wanted to be different. And he was living in New York City at the time, so it's it's funny that you say no one knows anybody from New York because I think my dad would agree with you that a lot of people from New York City don't do that, but. Um, where we want to go next is just talk a little bit about, you know, your first job at Goldman Sachs and that kind of that process of um, going through Goldman Sachs and what separated you because there's a lot of elite talent and high performers there at Goldman Sachs. So what allowed you to kind of keep moving up the ranks there at Goldman? Yeah, that's a good question. So my first job was selling money markets, which could have been selling vacuum cleaners. It's probably the easiest job in finance. And it was a good job for me because I was so excited to be in New York and I was going out all the time and, it didn't require uh, the same intensity uh, as a, mo- a lot of other jobs on Wall Street. Uh, and I was kind of a natural-born salesman. If you ever met my mother, she could sell anything to anybody. And, and so I kind of thought that's where my strength was, my edge. Uh, I had a roommate from college, a wrestler as well, Rich Tavoso, and uh, he was in the trading business. He was doing really well, and I always thought, I don't know if I'm be better or worse than Rich at trading, but I know I can outsell him because, uh, you know, he, we, we called him fudge because he talked like he had fudge in his mouth. Uh, <laughs> and, so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I was kind of playing to my strength um, and, you know, had a lot of fun. But I did know, and this is where I give myself some credit, I was like, the world has got to going international and, like, I'm young and I want to be overseas. And so I pushed really hard on my bosses to put me in a spot that dealt with the globalization movement that was starting. Um, that, and that ended up you know, having me go to L- London and trade markets and, and live in Tokyo and then move to Hong Kong. Uh, and about four years in, my boss at the time, John Corzine, uh, asked me to switch from being a salesman to being a trader, a risk taker. Uh, and. Partly, I was my own bravado. The, the traders got paid a lot more than the salesmen, and I kind of thought that was horseshit. Uh, and so I would complain and complain, and then he called my bluff. And then I was really scared. I was like, oh, sh- sh- I know I can sell. I don't know if I'll be any good at trading. And so that's kind of where wrestling came back into it. I was in Hong Kong, and I was given this amazing opportunity to learn how to take risk in all markets. And I just – that's probably where I worked the hardest because – there was a ton of fear and that, that whole fear of like why I was scared to wrestle the, the guy who I thought was ranked seventh and not, you know, kind of came back and being a speculator or a risk taker is all about conquering your fear. It's all about creating some process so you're not scared all the time, right? If, if I told you to take all the money you've ever saved and bet it on red, you're like, ha, 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 ha. and like, so you got to go up. 60 bucks. So. <laughs> <laughs> all 60 has gone. And so, the process of developing a a practice on how to on how to invest and figuring out what part you're good at is similar to you know the process of developing confidence in in sport. It comes from a lot of discipline. You know, you don't Jordan Burroughs just doesn't show up and he's Jordan Burroughs. He works his ass off. John Smith once told me he did I think twenty 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 thousand high crotches one year in pra- practicing. You know. Uh, I was actually trying to count up how many of that was per day. Or, um, and so, you know, I 
moved to Hong Kong, uh, I was sometimes success is just being in the right place at the right time, right? I was in Hong Kong when the world blew up out there. There was an Asian crisis in 1997. And so uh, when the world blows up, you can either be a hero or a goat, right? Like you don't hear stories of heroes from peacetime. You hear them from wartime. And I was in the right seat. My group did an amazing job. And so we kind of became, you know, localized heroes in the Goldman Sachs world. Uh, they made me a partner uh, at a relatively young age. And, uh, and so that was great. You know, I did some smart things. I always sought out mentors. You know, if I was an Ohio State wrestler. I'd be very close with Tom Ryan, I'm sure, uh, and ask him a lot. How did he get successful? How did, you know, how does he approach the world? What's he thinking about X? Uh, did he like the new Star Wars better than the old Star Wars? Uh, and so, and I didn't do it as an ass kiss, and I didn't even do it consciously. I just had some confidence to realize that, you know, he goes to the bathroom and takes a, you know, takes a poop just like you do. Uh, and so there was no fear in me to talk to older people that, you know, deserve more respect. Uh, I was respectful, but I befriended my bosses and they took to that. Uh, and so I look back on my 11 years at Goldman Sachs. I had three mentors during that 11 years that were three of the top four guys that ran the firm. This was a firm of 25,000 people. Um, and so there was a lot of luck involved in that. Uh, but there was also just a lot of confidence. It didn't seem like confidence to me. It seemed natural. I think it's probably because of my mother. Uh, and I had come from a big family. And so, you know, we were comfortable around adults. And, um, but I always tell people that when I go to schools, I was like, listen, you need to go find mentors, steal mentors, seek mentors. And you can find them in clients. You can find them in books. You can find them by going up. Some of the most powerful words in the English language are saying, hey, tell me how you became so successful. People just will talk for hours and you'll learn lots. And, uh, and so I, I did that in a nice way and developed, you know, I think good relationships with people that really taught me a lot. And so that's probably the, my takeaway from Goldman Sachs because it's, it's probably the, the firm in the world still that has the single most impressive group of people at it both driven, smart, athletic, talented. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of my favorite quotes is that success leaves trails, and I think that people like Tom and Travel Delognev and Kyle Snyder and Logan Steber, the people that we got, Mike and I got, we're fortunate enough to spend our time around in college, will never know how much of an effect they had on our lives, at least me personally, because the way that they thought and the way that they would approach situations and the confidence that they brought to the room is something that has helped me raise to the next level just in terms of my life now. And then professionally, you know, it's like Mike and I's goal now is to find those same level of people in the professional world. Because I don't, I think a lot of people don't understand or they don't even subconsciously don't believe the level you can make it to until you're surrounded by people who are at that level and you realize, wow, this is possible. And, you know, you just, when success leaves trails, you start mimicking those people and you start experiencing that success. Um, and the fact that you said that you're kind of just always in the right place at the right time when people say that to me and I, I sit back and I think I'm like, well, yeah, but it's because you're passionate, you worked super hard and you sought out mentors and then, you know, things just tend to fall into place for people who do stuff like that. So I think that's pretty awesome. But to kind of twist it into the form of a question, I think what I'm really curious about, and I think I might know the answer a little bit from you telling your beginning story, but did you always have like a, an, an ache just to be the best and, and to leave your mark on the world? Or was it kind of just like, you know, you were, wanted to work really hard in the moment and whatever happened, happened? No, there was a, you know, I was a, 
a cute little blonde kid that everyone was told I was special. And I think that both comes with a lot of baggage and it comes with a lot of uh, opportunity. And I think I've taken both of those. Um, and so I always just assumed, I, I mean, I remember reading a book about John Rockefeller when I was like nine years old. And I was like, oh my God, I wonder if we have any rich relatives. Like I would like bug, bug my mother. Don't we have a cousin somewhere? And, and, but I was fascinated with, you know, his story and how he became, you know, the richest man in the world. Um, and so there was a ambition in me, uh, somewhere, but there was also a sense of, you know, my, we're a Catholic family and my mother, you know, you were given so much, you got to get back. Now I look back, I'm like, what the hell given so much? We had seven kids in one bathroom. Right, you know, and so the reality is, you know, we were a good old middle class family, but you know, in in our minds, in my mom's minds, and in in her heart, we were all given so much that you had to give back. So that process started at a really young age. Uh, I have a sister who's far, far more accomplished than I am and famous than I am, who started this thing called the Acumen Fund, which is really the first, you know, impact investing business, uh, and really one of the most elegant woman when it comes to speaking about poverty and how to deal with the poor globally and how to how to bring dignity to, to people's lives. Um, and so a combination of my mother and my dad, my sister, service was always in the DNA. Uh, from high school, college, you know, and, and even as soon as I started, before I started making money, I was always doing something. Um, when we got really rich, you know, at Fortress and whatnot, my, one of my partners bought the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, and he's, he's a wonderful guy. And, and, you know, I had a chance to invest in him. And I was, when I really was honest with myself, I was like, I don't even like sports that much, like, you know, professional sports that much. I actually like politics and policy on how we make change. And so I'm like, I'd rather spend my money on change than on the Milwaukee Bucks. No, no offense to you Milwaukee fans. Um, it's not that I don't like sports. My God, I spend a ton of my time in wrestling because I like wrestling. Um, but I like wrestling as much for what it means for culture, what it means for kids, and how it changes people. Uh, you know, it's one of the few warrior sports left. I love the fact that the two guys that took down the plane, uh, you know, that crashed in Pennsylvania that was aimed for the White House were wrestlers. Like, you know, just, that's cool. I like the fact that the guy in Oregon uh, just last year who ran into the, 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 the shooting there uh, was a wrestler. Uh, you know, I like the fact that wrestling teaches you to lead off the front foot, that 13 of the 44 presidents have wrestling in their background. Um, and so, you know, listen, I also love watching great wrestling. Uh, but politics and policy and change and how to make the world a better place was kind of in the DNA early on. Now, I'm also a peacock. I, I like having fun. Uh, I, you know, I look at it, all kinds of businesses and I, I love, you know, seeing someone take something and grow it big. And so uh, by no means am my mother Teresa, <laughs> you know, far, far from it. Uh, but there's that, you know, you, you can hold both things. You can, you can care about the world and want to make a difference and you can also have a selfish side and a fun side and a, uh, and I think that's kind of where I'm, where I come out. Absolutely. You know, and what I'm really interested in about all that is, um, how that, you know, 
how this kind of thought mindset shaped your time at Goldman Sachs, especially when you became a partner and then decided to leave and go to Fortress. So how, did, how was leadership different for you? And, um, you know, could you maybe see less of this fun side of you when you're a leader or can you stay a leader and still be fun? You know what? The, the, I mean, the really honest answer is um, I probably had my greatest, you know, embarrassment, defeat, shame right after I became very, you know, I became one of the youngest senior leaders of Goldman Sachs. And, and then I left uh, the firm shortly after that, mostly because of personal mistakes. Uh, and when I look back on that, that was a little bit like, you know, the guy that gets it all and isn't really ready for it. And so while I had leadership DNA, uh, I also didn't have the responsibility or the kind of the I didn't take that responsibility seriously enough to realize that it was time to grow up. Uh, listen, there are age-appropriate things to do when you're 16 and when you're 25 and when you're 30 and when you're 40. And when things come quick to you, you can sometimes mix those things up. And so, you know, in, in wrestling parlay terms, I got my ass kicked uh, and left Goldman Sachs, you know, with my tail between my legs and, and embarrassed and ashamed and, and took a year to kind of think about and... And, you know, I stopped drinking for a year. I, that's when I ran the seven marathons across the, the Sahara. And that, that race was amazing because it was kind of, it brought me back to life. I was like, the world is good. Like, you just felt alive again. But I had had a really shitty year. Uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. And, and quite frankly, I only started Fortress or, you know, joined Fortress. 9-11 uh, happened. And I was sitting there, you know, taking care of my kids. My wife was dropping one off. Uh, I was unemployed, trying to figure out what to do. Uh, and no one, you know, when you're a rich guy, you're not unemployed, I guess. You're a private investor. Or, you know, you, if you told someone you're unemployed, it's, 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 it doesn't sound right. But I literally was, you know, I had no job and no real purpose. Uh, and so it felt that, that same. And my brother called me originally when the plane hit the first tower. And he was like, Jesus, what, what am I supposed to do? And I was like, hey, buy Euro dollars. And he was like, what? I was like, oh, get out of the building. And, you know, uh, so my, my instincts were such trading instincts. I was like, uh, he thought I was a freak. Uh, but then my second instinct was, oh, let's go see if I can help. And I was, you know, I had my army outfit. And, and what was really frustrating is in the, the New York PD was so good. 30 minutes after the first plane, hit, the city was locked down and you couldn't even go down to help. And so I was like, no, I can't work. I can't help. And really felt impotent. Uh, and so I decided I'm going back to work and I went back to work shortly after and I went back in the markets partially cause I felt like, you know, I didn't like the way I left. Uh, I had a guy at Goldman Sachs who was a buddy of mine who called me up. He said, let's partner up. Uh, he had an amazing reputation. Uh, and so I was kind of trading, you know, a little of my broken glass for his good reputation. And, uh, then we joined the guy who had started Fortress, Wes Edens and made a partnership on the back of a napkin. We both had this insight that if you built independent businesses under the same roof, you could sell it for a lot more than any one of those businesses or all three of those businesses were worth. Um, and so we set out to build Fortress and set out with kind of a, uh, again, wind behind our back for whatever reason, but a ferocity and, and got that accomplished. And, and so that was a neat, neat experience. It did come out of, you know, getting a, a thorough ass whooping um, and 
having to kind of relook. And I remember it was interesting, the, the lessons in life. Part of trading created so much stress that, you know, I needed outlets for it. Uh, I didn't know why I was good at what I was good at. And then I have this breakthrough moment where I realized this is why I'm good at what I'm good at. And I thought, oh, so I started giving lectures at colleges about how do you, even my Hall of Fame speech uh, at wrestling, I was at that point where I actually thought I had kind of solved the riddle. And it was relief and power. And my business grew from 300 million to two and a half billion, literally in the six months after I had this breakthrough. Um, you know, but, so I thought, oh, I've solved it all. And then 2008 comes and we get our butts kicked again. I mean, just beat down and all for dumb reasons. And you start feeling like a fraud. And, and I was like, I thought I'd solved all those issues. Uh, and you kind of get right back into the, the, the mix. And so what I've realized is the life journey is a much a journey about self-introspection and trying to figure out what drives you. And it's, you know, your mother and your father, and it's, it's, it's finding some spiritual place in you. Uh, and, uh, to really understand what moves you and what matters. Uh, my wife says, well, you spend your first 50 years uh, kind of building up your ego and your next 50, 50 years taking apart your ego, like realizing it's not that important. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. And so, you know, that's the exciting part of life, I think, is that journey. Most people don't start it until they're 25 or 30 or depending on their life circumstance. But that journey to understand what moves you. Right, because we're all scared of something. Uh, Tony Robbins says there are seven billion people. We're all scared of the same thing that we're not enough. Uh, we're not smart enough, good looking enough, well endowed enough. You know, whatever the, the enough is, rich enough, poor enough. Um, and so that you know that journey has been kind of, and it's funny. My my wife is a is a is a warrior on that journey, and she's writing a book on meditation at this point. I've been to India to ashrams and uh, wisdom schools. And, um, and I kind of think that's part of the, the important part of life, quite frankly. And that's what fuels you in the, the next thing you're going to do. Uh, and so it's a long-winded answer. Uh, <laughs> no, it's good. I like the tangent that we went off of. And I kind of, you know, something that hit me really big there is when you talked about, you know, experiencing, I mean, you had obviously made You'd have made a good amount of success when you had left Goldman Sachs, but you sat there and even though you had wealth and you had these things, you didn't feel like you had a purpose. And that's, I think a lot of great people are constantly searching for a purpose and they need to have a reason every day when they wake up in the morning. And I think that becomes, and then you transition that into being self-aware. And I think from the people that Mike and I have talked to over the last several years that are at the top of their level, they have an amazing sense of self-awareness, but it's probably the hardest thing I think to actually develop in life, to really know yourself to know what drives you. So I guess what I'm interested in is knowing when you, you said in those six months, you realized something about yourself that helped you grow up to two and a half billion dollars with Fortress. And then you lost it all in 2008. Well, not at all, but you guys took a hard hit in 2008. <clears throat> so can you talk, talk about what you learned? And then when that hit happened, what went through your mind and how you recovered from that? Sure. And so, you know, I'll tell you two stories. I, I got invited to Lightford Key, which was the premier, premier hedge fund conference where all the world's greatest investors were there. And I was like the new young guy. And you had to pitch a couple stories. And 
all of a sudden, the guy before me pitched this, one of the stories I was going to pitch. And so it comes to me, and I'm like, shit. And I'm looking around at the legends of the industry. And, and I'm usually a pretty good public speaker. Uh, and I froze up. I was like, um, 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 uh, I, 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 we, we should. Uh, and one of the guys who, know, who knew me well was like, hey, no, regrets, speak up. We can't hear you. I was dying a thousand deaths. It was, and I gave this terrible performance and I literally wanted to commit suicide right then and there and just like put a knife in my stomach. I was so embarrassed. And I went back, I was like, what was that about? Like, you know, just guys, uh, but I didn't understand it. And sure enough, I'm having lunch with this guy, Ehud Barak. Ehud Barak was the prime minister of Israel. He was the most decorated soldier in the history of the Israeli army. Uh, he had the highest IQ in the history of the Israeli army, and he is charming as a motherfucker. Uh, he's also killed more people than you and I have kissed. Uh, uh, you know, he is tough, but he's soft. You know, he's got this beautiful sense about him. And he's sitting with me, he says, no, Rats, I figured you out. You're not very smart, but you're lucky. Uh, and then he had a quote from Napoleon about, I don't hire smart generals, I hire lucky generals. And... What Napoleon meant and what Barack meant was that their intelligence was an intuition. The general has a battlefield. He can scan the battlefield and he has a, kind of a pattern recognition on the battlefield. He, he senses when to go and not go. There's a charisma to his personality that can create leadership. We don't know how to define it, so we call it luck. But it really is an intelligence. And when he was saying that about macro traders, he had two other clients that were far more successful at what I did than I than, uh, than me. So I felt real flattered just to be in that, that company. It dawned on me, I was like, ah, I'm good at what I do because of this, you know, skill. And I don't need all the other skills. At Lifer Key, you know, talking about the Russian currency, I was so worried that I didn't remember the name of the finance minister or the, well, I didn't need those names. That wasn't important to how I made decisions. And so like, Dudes, being comfortable with what you're good at and what you want to do in life and not needing to be everything else was an amazing lesson. To be able to say, yeah, that's good for you. It's not good for me. Uh, you know, like, to be, it developed a confidence in, in not needing to have to be everything. Just, hey, I'm not real good at that. I, I can't remember people's names. Sorry, it's just I'm not good at it. I'll, I work harder at it. But, like, so that acceptance of, and it's easy because we're all good at something. We all have a purpose on life. Uh, you know, and a lot of your life journey is figure out what you're good at, what your purpose is, you know, what makes you, what makes you tick. Uh, there was the valedictorian at Princeton. Uh, he got 36 A pluses out of 39 classes. And he wanted to do the job I did. And he just wasn't that great at it. And I'm like, dude, you're, you're so great at everything else in the world. You know, find where you really can contribute. Like, don't be syphysis, keep pushing the rock up the hill until, you're, until your face, until it rolls on your face. And so there was a lot of power in that. Uh, and I still believe it. Like, you know, we're, you're not going to be perfect at everything and figure out, accept what you're not good at. Doesn't mean you can't work on it. But naturally, you know, some brains work one way, some brains work another way. And, you know, for me, I had almost felt like a fraud. I was so successful but I wasn't exactly sure why it was good. So like when I retired from Goldman Sachs the first time or switched jobs, I was like, whew, fooled them. 
Like no one, I'd made all this money empirically. It said I was really good, but I didn't exactly know why. Uh, and so there's a lot, again, it's self-awareness. There's a lot of importance to that, that process. So you became self-aware and you found out what you're, what you're good at. You stayed in your lane is what it sounds like. And you just excelled. But then when 2008 hits, you know, you guys take a major blow and then did that, did you kind of have to step back and say, man, I thought I was good at this. I was doing so well. And how'd you recover from that? Well, you know what? It was interesting. In 2008, I, my ability to make money never changed. My ability to build, I built a giant business and I told people, you know, this is how we risk manage. This is how we, and, and it just, we had built it too fast. And quite frankly, we hadn't been doing all the things we were supposed to be doing with the, with the discipline and intensity we should have been. You know, so, for instance, I thought about two weeks before Lehman Brothers went bust, I was like, we want no more risk to Lehman Brothers. I talked to my people, get us out of Lehman Brothers. All right, we're, we're, we've only got this much risk to Lehman Brothers. $20 million is all we can lose, and we lost $400 million. And I'm like, all right. And so I felt like a fraud in front of my partners and my investors because I told them, hey, we're all right. You can't blame your whole team. I put the team together. Uh, some guys didn't do his job as well as they should have. Uh, I certainly didn't double check and triple check like great managers. You know, they, they don't assume things, right? The famous Felix Unger line, you make an ass out of you and me if you assume, right? They, they, they trust but verify. Uh, they've got systems in place to make sure shit like that doesn't happen. And we had built too fast and didn't have the right team in place. Uh, and so I had solved one issue about my own ability to trust myself predicting what's going to happen in markets to, to read the tea leaves. That gave me so much confidence. There was another flank of building a business that I was weak on. And, and you know, then had to kind of restart there and rebuild credibility with people. Uh, go back and say, all right, how do you, how do you fix it? And, and sometimes it's, how do you supplement yourself? If you're really good at this and you're not so good at this, can you hire the right guy that really is good at this? Um, and so it's funny, you know, there's, <laughs> you solve this puzzle and you got this one to solve. Uh, and now, listen, I'm now trying to figure out what to do next in my life. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of other you know, puzzles to come up with that you, you got to kind of figure out, all right, what's next? Definitely. And so, you know, you mentioned you're trying to figure out what you're doing next. Do you have any idea where you're going from here? You know, I realized a couple things uh, early is that I like giving money away and I like spending money. And so partly I've got in the short run, I'm going to build a, a an infrastructure at family office to make sure my own money gets invested well enough that the income comes in that allows me to do what I want to do. Uh, I'm in a year of listening, I, I call it. I'm going out with people. I'm trying lots of things. I spent a few weeks or a few months in Hollywood, you know, looking at the movie business after the, the, the experience with Nate. Uh, I've looked at music. I've looked at different investing. And I think for the next year or so, I'm going to have a bit of uh, an office that does lots of things, you know, uh, we're investing in the, the oven of the future. It's the coolest thing I've seen in years. It's like, you know, Tesla is to the car what this oven is to the oven. Um, 
And so something, you know, like that, investing in a new insurance company. And so, you know, some businesses, uh, I've spent a lot of time in digital currencies. I don't know if you guys follow Bitcoin and Ethereum, but uh, I think the blockchain is, is, is a revolutionary, uh, has revolutionary potential in, in 10 years. Uh, it's going to change the way a lot of businesses operate. And so I've been spending a lot of my mental energy and, and thought there. Uh, last night or two nights ago, because of this Brexit vote, right, the Brits decided to, to leave the EU. I couldn't help it. I got back involved in the trading business and I was buying and selling and, you know, made a whole bunch of money in one day and that kind of felt good. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm always, I'm sure I'll keep a toe there. Uh, but what I'm hoping is through all of this uh, in the next some period of time that I find one I find one mission because, you know, listen, I'm 51. I hate even admitting 51. I'd like to say 50, but 51. Uh, if I look at all the demographic tables and where health is going, you know, we're going to live to be 100. Uh, uh, you guys will probably live to be 110. I'm aiming for 120, but, you know, I'm going to. I mean, that's, so you have to rethink, like, kids, like, should I take a gap year? Of course you should take a gap year. Like, what's the big rush? You got a lot of time. And so I've got at least 30 great years left, maybe 50. Um, and so I really want to make sure. When we left Goldman Sachs, two friends and I sat around in the veil. We were skiing. We were like, if when we die, Goldman Sachs is mentioned in our obituary, we haven't succeeded. Right? Like, it was a great chapter. And maybe it can get one sentence or one line. But damn it. And I feel the same thing now with Fortress. Fortress was a wonderful chapter. I mean, we were the, it was an amazing success. But when I die in 30 or 40 years, they better not talk, well, he was at Fortress. Like, I hope to have accomplished something much bigger than that uh, or much more relevant. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to use this time and use this platform. I mean, it's a very privileged and lucky place to be, to have the time and money and platform. Um, but I want to find some mission that, really feels like it fits. Yeah, definitely. And I'll tell you what, the podcast industry is blowing up. So if you're looking for some investments, we got a P&L statement with lots of L on it. <laughs> <laughs> but You know, I, I like the podcast industry. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, growing. And you catch, I mean, for people who are into self-improvement and things, you can literally find a 60-minute snippet into somebody's mind on almost anybody out there, which I think, you know, between Mike and I and I'm sure other people who are constantly interested in just ways to improve and learn from others. It's the greatest resource you could ever tap into. Um, but you know what I want to talk about a little bit is you obviously your family members and your brothers and sisters or your brother and sister are amazingly successful. And does that kind of motivate you even more to kind of make your stamp and your own unique um, imprint on the world? You know, be, people ask my mom a lot, you know, seven kids, they've all done well. And, you know, I've got this famous sister and my brother's got a TV show and my little, me, and, and she's got a very good answer. She's, I used to hit him with a wooden spoon. <laughs> I think the, the beauty of a big family, uh, of a clan, and it doesn't even have to be birth family. It can be your, whatever you de determine your family is, is that A, they call your bullshit when you're full of shit. Right. And so like, you're just, a, you're just another guy or a woman. Um, but B, you're given the right to take risk, knowing that if you screw up, somebody's going to still love you. Uh, you know, that you fall back on this, 
spider web of support. Um, I, I, I honestly, and maybe because I was more successful early, uh, I, out, I, I don't see my brothers and sisters as competition by any stretch, that they, they drive me. My sister inspires me that, you know, she's entertained world. My brother-in-law kicks all our butts. He, he, he founded TED or runs TED. Uh, and it's just like, if I'm going to compete, no, who's going to beat that guy? And so you don't compete. You try to draft off him, right? Uh, and you try to get inspired by him. Uh, and you try to inspire the other ones. Um, and so it's fun to be part of a clan that's, you know, all thinks they can make their own impact and try to change the world a little bit. Um, but it's not competition. It really is more uh, drafting. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Hey, we, we've got a friend of ours, actually, who we like to draft ideas off of from time to time. His name's Alex Picasso. I don't know if you know him. And uh, we call him the dream crusher. Because <laughs> anytime we bring an idea to him, I think he finds about seven or eight things wrong with it. And just, I've God, had, you guys I've are had, idiots. I've had $14 billion app ideas where I was convinced. I'm like, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be hanging out with Mike Novogratz because I made it. And then I go, to, I go to Alex, he's like, That's, this is why that is stupid. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go get another idea and I'll come back to you in a week. So, But uh, to kind of like, you know, come to the end here and, and wrap things up a little bit, we got a couple final questions. And uh, one of our themes is living uncomfortably. And we find that a lot of the people that we talk to, you know, especially um, when Tom's episode releases, we touched on this a lot. But the years of your life where you think you had to live the most uncomfortably to get to where you want. And did you think that, do you think that living uncomfortable at times is necessary? Do you think that everybody can kind of live in their comfort zone and still achieve their goals? Well, you know, it's funny because let's define uncomfortable different ways. So I've got a 13 year old son that I literally, my wife just put on a plane two minutes ago to do two weeks in the Colorado wilderness at outward bound, you know, and for him, when they when they asked him on the the essay, uh, describe yourself. He said, "I'm a very urban child." <laughs> and then, and then when they said, well, "What are you looking forward to?" He's like, "Day 13 and 14." Yeah, he really didn't want to go to Outward Bound, and and so yeah, that that kind of living in your own comfort, we all need to do some because you learn something about yourself. Uh, quite frankly, I should have sent him for a month, um, toughen him up. You know, learn nature, fall in love with nature, see a different way of people. You know, you live in New York City, you see it one way of life. You know, you go to the Colorado Rockies, it's a different way of life. And so that's one way of being out of your comfort zone. Being in the army with 700 guys in barracks is another way, right? So, yeah, those things are great learning experiences. You also need to l learn to be uncomfortable like being between jobs is a really uncomfortable position. How do you define yourself? What do you do? And I'm fighting the urge to just like make an answer, get an answer, do something. In reality, I think the right thing to do is just sit. Sit uncomfortably until the right answer shows up. And so there's both a practical nature to your question and a, and a more metaphysical answer. And I think you learn by doing the practical things. Yeah, you know, go hike through the, the Alaskan wilderness with, you know, 500 calories a day <laughs> and do it for a week and you really learn something about yourself. Um, but also just doing nothing is really uncomfortable for some people. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think you learn a lot in your uncomfortable zone. I, my flaw probably, or one of them is uh, I'm so social 
that I don't like to be by myself. And I got to keep moving. Got to do something. And that's not a that's not a great skill or a great trait. You know, sitting back and being patient and really thinking through things uh, is really uncomfortable. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I think that's a good place for us, uh, you know, to finish up here. And Mr. Nurgaretz, thank you so much for being on the show. We really enjoyed it. And I'm going to kick it over to Josh. He's going to give the recap of the episode. Yeah, I think, it was, <laughs> I think it was awesome. I don't know if I could recap all that, but I think it was just great to kind of dive into your mind a little bit and hear, you know, you get a chance to talk to a lot of successful people and you kind of start to form a thread between all of them and hear similar ways that they think. And it's just a constant state of wanting to achieve more and never being satisfied. And I think that we can definitely hear that in your story. And there's still a lot more to be um, written for you, which I'm super excited to sit back and watch and, and see how it goes. But uh, Mike and I obviously appreciate your time. We enjoyed getting to know you a little bit this morning and um, hope you have a great rest of your weekend out there in the Hamptons and spending time with your friends and family. Good stuff, guys. Hey, and great luck in this endeavor. Thanks. Thank I appreciate you, it. We'll talk to you later. One day we're going to see you at Beat the Streets, New York. Hey, yeah, that sounds good. Definitely. Take care. All right. Bye. bye. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.